If you want to turn your Bibles to Jude, the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is um, an obscure book. I was looking at um, an Anglican minister in England uh, named Dick Lucas, and uh, he has a, a great sermon series on Jude that he entitled Jude the Obscure. Um, so you might not know where it is because it is rather obscure, but it's the, the very last book of the Bible before the book of Revelation. Uh, so it's right before the book of Revelation. It's a single chapter, uh, just kind of sneaked in there, it seems, but it is incredibly important, uh, and we are um, joyfully working our way through it slowly. This is our third week in Jude. We are in verse 4, um, and that's just kind of how we do things around here. If you're a guest with us today, um, our kind of typical practice uh, is to grab a book of the Bible and just simply kind of walk our way through it. And we may choose that book of the Bible for any uh, kind of various reasons. Um, but we are walking through Jude right now uh, because the, the main purpose of Jude's letter is calling us to contend for the faith, which is so enormously important in this cultural moment with the church facing all of the various challenges we're facing from every side, uh, we, we need to heed this call to contend for the faith. Um, and so last week, Pastor Dan covered verse 3, um, and we just took a single week to cover verse 3 because that's the kind of purpose statement of the book. The purpose statement of the book is found in verse 3. And now as we move into verse 4, we're not looking at the purpose, but the occasion that gave rise to the purpose. So we're looking at the occasion of, of the book, the reason that the book was written, uh, the reason that Jude has this purpose in mind when writing is because of this occasion which gave rise to it. And so let's dig in. Jude, uh, verse 4, we're going to read uh, verses 3 and 4. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, let's listen with reverence and joy because this is God's word. And so this should come to the very same authority as if Jesus himself was up here speaking it to us right now. We should hear these words with that very same weight because this is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. So listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. Jude writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, we ask that you would take the, the, the meager elements and, and gifts that I bring this morning, that you would multiply it so that our hearts and souls may be nourished by your word. We pray that uh, you would open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to believe it, to trust it, to obey it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> so I've been talking with a few members of our church recently, and they've been asking me if we might reconsider our church's teaching regarding the final judgment. And this is something I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, traditionally, we've taught that when Jesus returns, 
he'll do so to judge the living and the dead, and that for anyone who's not repented and believed on Jesus for salvation, that they'll be sent away into eternal condemnation. And for those who do believe on Jesus and repent of their sin, that they'd be sent into eternal life. You know, the scriptures do teach such a thing clearly, but I'm just not sure that we can responsibly teach such a thing in these days so much anymore. It could compromise our church's fruitfulness and mission. It's not really that popular or tasteful. And after all, the scriptures also teach that God is love, right? And, and so all of this judgment stuff just doesn't seem to kind of vibe with that teaching from scripture regarding God's love. And so based on the concerns of these members and based on our uh, efforts to teach consistent with Scripture's teaching on God's love, our church's official teaching on judgment and hell is going to change. Instead, we'll begin to teach that God will lovingly accept everyone at the end of the age and that love will indeed win in the end. And my question for you is, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that. If I ever actually got up here and said that in all sincerity, what are you going to do about it? And, and you could just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, oh well, I, I guess that's what our church believes now. You could maybe just immediately pack your bags and head to another church down the road. That, that might be a responsible uh, action to take. In some cases, that might be the right thing to do. But before you do that, I want you to hear Jude's exhortation here and think through it. His exhortation for us, should should ever such a thing ever happen, his exhortation for us is to contend. To contend. Because from what we can tell, the situation in the church to which Jude was writing, or the churches to which Jude was writing, is not all that dissimilar to the situation I just put before you. Uh, Of course, in case it's not clear, like we're not changing... Our church's official teaching. Uh, hopefully you know that. Um, but in, in the church or, or churches to which Jude was writing, there was a change in the official teaching of the church. False teachers had crept into the church to which Jude was writing, and this false teaching sought to permit immoral and debaucherous ways of living and denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. Some of their teachers had lost the gospel entirely, And there was a danger for these churches. They were on the verge of losing the gospel because their teachers were teaching a false gospel. This is why uh, Jude's audience, he says, ought to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. However, this problem was indeed the particular occasion for which Jude was writing his letter, but it's not a unique occasion. It's not a unique occasion. In fact, it's an occasion which has repeated itself throughout the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. If you consider not just Jude's situation, but think about this Egyptian pastor Athanasius in the 4th century and his fight against the false teaching of Arius. Or consider Augustine, not much later, and his contending against the false teaching of Pelagius. You move on, you think about uh, St. Dominic Guzman and his fight against the heresy of the Cathars in the Middle Ages. You think about Luther and his fight against the indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church. You think about Spurgeon and his fight against the downgrade controversy. William Carey, his fight against hyper-Calvinism, and on and on. And you don't need to know about all of those specific occasions to know uh, this fact that arises from them, the lesson we glean from their examples, and that's that each generation, each believer, each church 
needs to contend for the gospel because we're all at times in danger of losing the gospel. And so Jude's timeless exhortation remains we're to contend, particularly when false teaching insidiously seeks to creep into the church. Contend. And that's what we want to explore this morning. That's the big idea. We're to contend against false teaching. We're to contend against false teaching. And I want to help us uh, along the way in that by considering reasons for contending, the realms of contending, and the requisites in contending. So first, the reasons. And here I merely want to explore what verse says, uh, states as the reason that Jude calls us to contend. So listen to what he writes. He says that his audience is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for or because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So certain people have crept in unnoticed and they're leading sensuous lives and holding to teaching that denies the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now part of what we need to understand here is that these certain people, at least some of them, were not only members of this church, they were actually pastors in the church. Jude, in verse 12, calls them shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds, pastors, feeding themselves. These men were tasked with shepherding and leading and caring for and teaching the church. Men like me and like Pastor Dan, and yet instead of truly shepherding the church and leading and caring for and teaching the church in accordance with the scriptures, they were, for selfish reasons, perverting the grace of God into license for immoral living and denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. For this reason, Jude calls them ungodly. That is, they're not like God, but they are unlike God and without God in the world. Now, part of what's so difficult here about the situation is it seems that they weren't doing this outright. Uh, it was more kind of covert, insidious, sneaky, not like what I just did at the beginning of this sermon. They were living immorally and permitting others to do the same and denying essential doctrines in the gospel, all while putting on a veneer of godliness. It doesn't seem that they were just outright saying that they deny Jesus Christ and they're no longer Christians. Uh, they may have even been comfortable saying that they were Christians, but it was an empty confession since in their doctrinal stances and in their way of life, they denied Christ's lordship. And with, with that, <clears throat> Jude makes clear that they stand condemned. He says that they were long ago designated for this condemnation. And you may or may not know this, but that's a, that's a controversial verse. Um, and uh, it, it seems to be teaching something at initial glance, something called double predestination. Uh, and this is in a kind of intermural debate between Reformed Christians, some of whom believe in double predestination and some of whom believe in single predestination. And uh, those who adhere to single predestination uh, believe that God only predestines the elect for eternal life, while those who believe in double predestination affirm that plus that, the, that God also actively predestines the unbeliever for eternal condemnation. And those who believe in double predestination will often uh, use this verse as a, a proof text for teaching that doctrine, while those who do not believe uh, that uh, doctrine 
interpret this text a little bit differently. Instead, they point out that this particular word translated as designated, that they were long ago designated for condemnation, could also be translated as written beforehand. They were long ago written beforehand for this condemnation. And then they point uh, to, to the fact that how Jude uses a number of examples from the Old Testament of false teachers and false believers in the church uh, throughout his letter. And so they say Jude is, is merely showing how these kinds of people have been present in the church since long ago, going all the way back to Israel as they left Egypt. Now, either position we might take here this morning, uh, the, the application from Jude here seems the same. It should not take us by surprise when false believers and false teachers are found present in the church. It's always been this way, and it always will be until Christ returns, because not everyone who names the name of Christ truly knows him. And so the call here is to remain diligent and discerning regarding the teachings and beliefs that we listen to and adopt in the church. You know, just because a person professes to be a Christian or a pastor or just because a community calls itself a church does not mean that we should unwittingly or uh, undiscerningly, if that's a word, I don't think it is, uh, engage with and adopt what they believe and teach. We should be discerning. Uh, and the two characteristics of the false teachers here help us keep an eye out for what we should see as red flags. The first, he says that they deny the Bible's teaching with their life and practice. They deny the Bible's teaching with their life and practice and with their doctrine. So first, he says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So you see, they are contradicting Scripture's teaching with their life and practice. They live immorally, or uh, your translation might say licentiously, or as ours says here, it's essentially, uh, your translation could, be, uh, could mention any of those, licentious, immoral, sensuality. Uh, and those are all kind of good translations for a somewhat difficult word. Uh, really what Jude is communicating here is that these false teachers are using God's grace as a license to sin in sensuous and debaucherous ways. They're using God's grace as a license to live immorally, but not just in a kind of vague way, in a specific sense. The, the word is, is more specific. It's immorality in the areas of like drink and food and sex, things that you engage with in your senses. They use God's grace as license to drink alcohol uh, excessively or to eat excessively or to engage in acts that scripture would call sexually immoral. They totally disregard scripture's teaching about sex and self-control. Uh, and we'll, we'll actually go on to see that later on. So we'll address this later on in the series. So I won't spend much time on it now. But suffice it to say, one red flag to look for with false teachers is immoral living, licentious living. But then there's another characteristic that should bring up red flags for us, and that's teaching false doctrine. Uh, uh, doctrine that is uh, in contradiction to what the scriptures teach. Jude says that they deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, I, I don't know, we don't know the specifics regarding what these false teachers were saying here. We don't know exactly what their doctrinal error is, but it seems that these men were in some way seeking to limit the lordship of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they were denying his deity. Uh, perhaps they were denying the truthfulness of his resurrection and, and ascension. Perhaps they were denying the, the doctrine of the final judgment. 
we're not exactly sure, but in some way, shape, or form, they were departing from the apostolic teaching regarding Christ and thus denying him. And so with that, that's what we can be on the lookout for. Uh, with, with whenever we listen to a teaching and engage with a teaching. We should not just accept whatever a person or author or theologian or community says just because they identify as Christian. If they pervert God's grace by living uh, in, in licentious or debaucherous ways or if they deny or depart from historical Christian beliefs regarding Jesus Christ, be discerning. Don't accept what they say, but, in, but instead contend, defend the faith, fight for the faith, Hold fast to the faith. Now with that, throughout this series, we don't just want to exhort you to contend, but we want to explore just more and more as we move throughout the series what that looks like. And uh, part of exploring what it means, uh, means that we need to consider where it is that we're called to contend. And so I want to talk not just about the reasons for contending, but about the realms for contending, the places in which we're called to contend. And the first and foremost kind of immediate application of this call to contend is the call to contend in the church, to do so in the church. And that's actually the realm that Jude is speaking to when he writes that these believers are to contend for the faith. They're to contend for the faith in the church. And I I know that for some of us, uh, we're rightly concerned about you know, potentially becoming the kinds of Christians and the kind of church that gets bogged down in, in theological debates and so much so that we miss the mission that we've been called to as a church. Our mission is clear, right? We're, we're called to proclaim and propagate the gospel here in Dayton and to the ends of the earth. And this call to contend, some of us might be concerned, could be misconstrued as a call to get bogged down in, in theological nitpicking and minutia and arguing about every single thing. That's a danger uh, that we need to be aware of, of course. But another danger is the possibility of our not protecting the gospel that we're trying to propagate. Okay, so you can see this in many churches throughout uh, the U.S., even here in, in our city. There are churches in our city here that I, I, I would ventured to, to, to wage that when they first started, they had the gospel. You know, Westminster Presbyterian downtown, Christ Episcopal Church downtown, when it was conceived, likely had a gospel that it proclaimed and propagated. Uh, these churches likely had a gospel that they proclaimed and propagated when they were initially conceived. But somewhere along the way, because they stopped seeking to protect the gospel, they now no longer have a gospel to propagate. In order to continue to propagate and proclaim the gospel, we sometimes have to protect the gospel, to protect our most sacred and dearly held beliefs regarding Christ and his cross and his resurrection. We must contend for the faith. And and part of what I want you to see here is that this is the responsibility of every single member of the church in some way, shape, or form. And that doesn't at all contradict what Pastor Dan said last week about elders, pastors, having a greater measure of responsibility for this. That's true. But while elders hold a greater measure of responsibility for this, we don't possess the sole responsibility for this. Each member of this church is responsible for contending for the faith in the church. Notice here that it's actually pastors 
who are promoting the false teaching, right? And, and furthermore, notice that Jude doesn't merely write his letter and address his letter to other pastors in the church to contend for the faith. He writes to the congregation or to the congregations themselves. He writes to the church. I think this is a good apologetic, actually, for congregational forms of, of church governance. You know, sometimes you guys will often ask the question like membership classes or, or even just in the life of the church, what makes Baptists distinct from other Christian traditions? Uh, you know, we're a Baptist church and all that. And uh, this is one of them. We believe in congregational forms of church governance. That is to say, there's not a bishop somewhere out there who's not a member of this church, not a bishop somewhere out there who's claiming to have oversight of this church. Uh, neither, we're not Presbyterian either. We don't have like an elder board uh, somewhere close by that, that provides oversight for this particular church. We are congregational in our form of church governance. Uh, and of course, our church is, is that means our, our church is governed within the congregation itself. Uh, and the elders do indeed provide oversight, but we don't have absolute authority here. We're held accountable by one another on our elder board, but also we're not just accountable to other elders, we're accountable to you. We're accountable to you as members of the church. And, and, and it seems that Jude just kind of assumes this form of church governance in his letter, doesn't it? Again, notice here, he's not writing to an elder board or to a bishop to take care of this issue. He's writing to ordinary church members like you as if they have the responsibility and the ability to do something about this. And so, my friends I, I, and fellow members of Veritas, in particular, I want to address members. Part of what I want you to, to, to do here, part of what I want to exhort you to do here is to take ownership of and responsibility for this church to take ownership of and responsibility of this church. Now, we say this a lot around here, but a church is very literally its members. You are the church. You are Veritas. Veritas is not Garrison Green Ministries Incorporated. Veritas is the members of Veritas. You are the church. And because of that, because this is your family, your church, your community, the the biblical fidelity of this church is your responsibility. You hold a special responsibility to guard the deposit of the gospel here at Veritas so that we can continue to proclaim this gospel in our city and bring it to the nations and pass it down to the coming generations that we're bringing up in our households. You are called to protect the gospel so that the gospel might, be, might continue to be propagated in this church. And you know, while my announcement of our changing our doctrinal stance about the, the final judgment was merely hypothetical earlier, I want you to realize that is not a rare thing. That thing happens all the time in churches throughout the world. And it could happen here one day. And if it ever does, you could look at uh, 1 Timothy 5.19 to see what it is you're supposed to do there. Uh, look at that this afternoon, but that's a, a good text to meditate on later. But at the end of the day, you're called to contend, to seek to protect the gospel that it might continue to be propagated here. Veritas member, this is your responsibility. This is your family, your community, contend in the church. But then not only in the church, I also want to consider contending for the faith in the home. 
Uh, I think it was Pope John Paul II that said, as the family goes, so goes the nation and so goes the whole world in which we live. Uh, and, and I think that's right, but we might also uh, have skipped a step there. We might say, rightly say that as the family goes, so goes the church. You know, the health of the church is dependent on households functioning like little churches, like little, your household functions as, as like a little parish of Veritas, wherein the gospel is propagated and also protected, where the faith is contended for. And oftentimes, we have the wonderful opportunity of not just doing this like on the defense, but on the offense, and not just contend for the faith kind of retroactively. That's kind of what we've been talking about here, and that's the occasion which Jude writes. But and we, we, in our homes, we often have the wonderful opportunity to not just retroactively contend for the faith, but to contend for the faith before false teaching ever even becomes an issue in the lives of our children, parents of young children, uh, in particular fathers. It's Father's Day. Let's consider fathers. Let me encourage you, take this call seriously. Are you raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as we see we're supposed to do in Ephesians 6? As we see in Deuteronomy 6, are, are, you, are, are you teaching your children about the scriptures and the things of God? You have the wonderful stewardship and opportunity to shape the worldview and beliefs of your children by teaching them the scriptures. Uh, out on the welcome table this morning, we have several uh, copies of the, the New City Catechism. Uh, and, and that's a, a, just a, a wonderful, we have even more in the basement. So if they all get taken, just talk to someone who has a key in the basement and, and we'll get you a, a copy of the New City Catechism. Um, going through a catechism is a wonderful way to teach your children the faith and, and to, to deliver the faith to your children, uh, the faith that was once for all given to us. Uh, and the New City Catechism is a wonderful tool to do that particular thing. There are 52 questions and answers. That's one for every week of the year. You can memorize them. Uh, you can, uh, there's um, uh, songs that are for, uh, available for free. You can go through those songs, memorize them that way, and teach your children the faith as you learn those songs and memorize those questions and answers. It's a wonderful tool. I encourage you to use it. Teach your family the faith and thereby raise up children who are contenders for the faith, con contend in the home. But then not only in the church, and not only in the home, but in the heart. Contend for the faith in your own heart. Now part of what we need to realize this morning is that some of the most insidious forms of false teaching are not those that sneak their way into our churches, but in our hearts. John Calvin once said that the, the heart is a master craftsman of idols. We so, are so easily form little idols and false teachings in our hearts. It's, we're so easily deceived. We, so e we have tickle, uh, itching ears that can be tickled so easily. And for that reason, I think it was uh, Mark Sayers who talked about uh, how we need to be careful of just believing whatever we want to believe. Uh, we just don't believe just whatever you want to believe, especially because you have this little, you know, $1,000 computer in your pocket that has Google on it, and you can literally search Google to be confirmed and affirmed in whatever it is you want to believe. Don't be a Google theologian. Be a biblical theologian. Don't be a Google theologian. Be a biblical theologian. You know, one of the things that I've, I've thought about in this past week is that I'm probably not any better or any smarter than these false teachers that Jude is talking about in these verses. You know, there but by the grace of God go I. 
I could just as easily pervert the grace of God into sensuality. I could just as easily be duped into teaching things that deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. My heart is just as susceptible to corruption as anyone else's apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. My heart does not always want to pick up my cross and crucify its flesh with all of its passions and desires. Sometimes I don't want to crucify self. I want to comfort self and coddle self and convenience self. And so I need to, just like we all need to, keep a close watch on my life and doctrine. We all need to do this. We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as godly as we think we are. And so we have to contend for the faith in our own hearts. We ought to give ourselves wholeheartedly to learning and studying the scriptures. As an old Anglican prayer says, we we ought to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the hope of everlasting life, which God has given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. We ought to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the scriptures as we contend for the faith in the church, in our homes, and in our hearts. Then we not only need to know the reasons in the realms of contending. We also need to, to understand some requisites for contending, uh, especially as we continue to explore uh, just some practicalities of what it looks like to contend in the series. We need to understand some essential commitments necessary in this fight. And the first is just continue on what we were just talking about, actually, and that's depending on the Scriptures. Depending on the Scriptures. Depend on the Bible. If you want to find the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, you find it in the Bible. If you want to find the deposit of truth that we as the saints have been entrusted with, you find it in the Bible. And for this reason, the Bible is our only final authority as Christians. The the reformers of the 16th century called this uh, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is our final authority. If any Christian or any pastor or any theologian or author, any church whatsoever teaches something contrary to what the Scriptures teach, we go with Scripture. That's not to say that we don't respect and submit to other authorities. The Scriptures themselves will call us to submit to other authorities. Hebrews 13, 17 even calls church members to obey and submit to their pastors. And yet, even with that, we pastors, we don't have an ultimate authority. We have a derivative authority, an authority derived from Scripture. And because of that, if we ever call God's people to violate sacred Scripture, you have a duty and a responsibility to go with Scripture. And so with that responsibility comes the need for you to read and learn and study the Scriptures. You need to know what the Scriptures teach. Don't just take my word for it up here. Go back to your Bibles this afternoon and check to see if what I'm talking about is true. You, you, need, we need, to, you need to be prepared with discerning ears that hear and notice false teaching. You need to know the counterfeit from the real thing. And the only way to do that is to depend on the Bible. We need to depend on the Bible. But the next, we also need to, to, to learn from tradition, receive from tradition, church tradition. The tradition that we've received and has been handed down to us from previous generations of Christians is so important. Uh, Of course, Scripture is our only final authority, but church tradition is helpful in that it assists us 
in holding fast to what the Bible teaches. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, I would not have assumed that that would be a proper title for uh, the church if it wasn't for Scripture saying that that's a proper title for the church. Uh, and yet this is what Paul calls the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's not to say that the church can't err or make mistakes, most certainly can, and we, we have over the last 2,000 years. And yet all in all, although she's not perfect, she has guarded the deposit of faith once for all delivered to the saints in the scriptures. The universal church has protected and guarded the gospel over the last 2,000 years, often at great cost to the saints, so that we might have this deposit of truth handed down to us today. The reason that we have the Nicene Creed and its untainted doctrine of the Trinity is because there were pastors and theologians from Africa and Asia and Europe who guarded the deposit of faith in perilous times. The reason that we have the great doctrine of sola scriptura handed down to us today, which protects us from the errors of church leadership, is because people like Luther and Calvin and Lady Jane Grey and Queen Jean fought for the faith in the Reformation. And with that, we would do well to learn from the Christian tradition from over the last 2,000 years, to use the resources handed down to us. Yes, the Bible is our only final authority, but as Spurgeon once said, it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think so little of what he has revealed to others. The Spirit has been at work in the church for the last 2,000 years about guiding the church to write beliefs about God, about Christ, about humanity and sexuality and about salvation in the Christian life. And we have the wisdom from these believers and we need to have the wisdom to learn from our forefathers and family so that we can avoid making some of the mistakes that they perilously, perilously dealt with. Uh, Michael Bird uh, recently said that tradition is knowing which mushrooms are poisonous without having to find out the hard way. Uh, we need to learn from our brothers and sisters in the past so that we don't need to learn the hard way of what's uh, wrong and, and, and evil and, and, uh, and, and untrue. Uh, we're not the first to read the Bible and, and to face difficult times. The church has very, done a very good job of this over the last 2,000 years, and so we should receive from our family and forefathers. And lastly, a requisite for contending is learning to practice theological triage. Theological triage. I want you to see here that for Jude, it's the gospel that's at stake here. Okay, what is at stake, he says, is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. A synonym for that being our common salvation. What is at stake is the grace of God, our beliefs regarding the grace of God, since that's what's in danger of being perverted. What's at stake here is our beliefs regarding the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, what's, not at, what's at stake is the gospel. It's the gospel that's at stake. It's not the timing of the millennium or the rapture. It's the gospel that's at stake. It's what's not at stake here. It's not at stake whether or not we should homeschool or public school or private school our children. What's at stake here is not how old the earth is. What's at stake here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to contend for. And in order to do that well, we need to learn to practice theological triage. Now, we've, we've, we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. 
practicing the, uh, theological triage. This is a practice uh, initially encouraged by a, a theologian named Al Mohler several years ago. It's re- recently been written about by uh, Gavin Ortland in his great book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And it's a fairly simple concept. All you medical professionals are well familiar with triage. But if you take a trip to the emergency room at a nearby hospital, you're going to benefit from this practice that the medical personnel there have been well-trained in called triage. It's a process that allows trained medical personnel to make quick evaluations of relative medical emergency. Uh, They learn to, to treat patients in relation to their medical priority. You know, which patients should be rushed into surgery? Which patients can maybe wait for a less urgent examination? Uh, who do you admit first? The person with the broken arm, the person with the, the life-threatening gunshot wound, or the person uh, that has an earache? Um, probably the person with the life-threatening gunshot wound should be taken care of first, regardless of when they arrived. The person with the broken arm is uh, more urgent than the earache, but they could probably uh, be seen next. And then the person with the earache could maybe just go home with some ibuprofen. I don't know what you do for an earache. Um, but similarly, uh, whenever we have disagreements in our church regarding matters of belief and practice, we need to learn to do triage. Not every disagreement calls for contending. Not every disagreement calls for, for contending. Sometimes we can simply agree to disagree and carry on living life together as a covenant community. There are, of course, some matters that require contending. There are some matters of Christian belief and practice that are worth fighting for. There are matters of first importance that we're even willing to die for. You know, we're not willing to flex on the cross of Jesus Christ, his death for our sins. We're not willing to flex on whether or not he's still in the grave or if he rose on the third day. We're not willing to flex on on, uh, whether or not adultery is morally permissible. We're not willing to flex on the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't put up with racism or sexual abuse or sexual immorality in our ranks. We can't put up with these things. We must contend when those kinds of issues arise. But what about... What about Christians who differ, use an example I already used, what about Christians who differ regarding the millennium, the timing of Christ's return? When does the thousand-year reign of Christ happen? Is it happening now? Or is it going to happen after he returns? Or will we kind of usher it in before he returns? Um, are, are you an amillennialist, a premillennialist, a postmillennialist? Are you just a panmillennialist? It's all going to pan out. I don't know. Uh, we... Do we fight and contend over these sorts of things? Are we going to fight and contend? Or what about whether or not we homeschool or private school or public school our children? These are not unimportant matters, to be sure. They're not unimportant. But should we fight and contend over them? Or should we rather have interesting conversations and debates with one another and then move on? Would that be more appropriate? I think so. And so with that, the call to do theological triage is a call to consider whenever we're confronted with a theological issue, a disagreement, whether something is of first importance, second importance, tertiary importance, or just a matter of conscience or indifference. There are matters of first importance, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ's death for our sins 
And resurrection on the third day is a matter, literally he says, of first importance. We should fight for it. We should even be willing to die for it. And we, we could put other matters here too, like the doctrine of the Trinity, the authority of the Bible, the humanity and deity of Jesus. These are gospel issues of first importance. And then there are matters of secondary importance. Uh, they're, 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 they're important. It's not that they're not important, but they're important in a secondary sense. They're important because they may not determine whether or not we lose the gospel, but they very much affect the health and vitality of our church and lives as Christians. What do we believe about baptism and the proper subjects of baptism? Should only professing believers be baptized, or should believers and their children be baptized? So obviously our church has a position on that. We think it's important. But it's not as important as the gospel or the trinity or the authority of the Bible. Or there are some matters in the kind of third level of importance. What do you believe about the timing and return of Christ? Will the millennium come after he comes, before, all of that? It's not an unimportant question, but it's it's also not so important that we should divide according to our answers to that question. In fact, our church has no official position on that matter because we believe that it's not a matter that should separate us as believers. And then there are issues of conscience. You know, should we drink alcohol in moderation or not? Uh, should we homeschool, private school, public school? All of the, these are matters of conscience. Not unimportant, but matters over which we can disagree and move on sharing life together. And now part of what we need to do in our efforts to, to, to contend for the faith is consider before contending, where should a particular matter that we're confronted with be placed in this framework? And this is so incredibly important. I once heard Al Mohler say that, that uh, the problem with fundamentalists is that they treat every issue as if it's a first importance. And the problem with liberals is that they treat nothing as if it's a first importance. We don't want to be liberals or fundamentalists. We want to be biblical gospel Christians. Christians who treat matters of first importance as such, matters of secondary and tertiary importance as such, and matters of conscience as such. Because listen, friends. In our fight for the faith, we must remember it's not the fight that we love, but the faith that we love. It's, it's, we fight, in other words, because we love Christ and because we love his gospel and because we love one another, not because we love to fight. The reason Jude wants us to contend is because he thinks that the common salvation, the faith, the grace of God, The lordship of Jesus Christ is precious and is of infinite worth. The reason we contend is because the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ is precious. He's worth it because he's our Lord and master. He's our savior who purchased us with his very own precious blood. He is the one who rose on the third day to usher in the new creation and to redeem our broken lives. He is the one who lavishes on us the unperverted grace of God on us undeserving sinners so that we could receive forgiveness and justification and salvation. And if those truths are precious to us, doesn't it make all the sense in the world that we would contend for them and fight for them when the need arises. 
shouldn't we want to protect the gospel all the more so that we can preserve the gospel and proclaim the gospel and propagate the gospel in a world in desperate need of it? We should, and we do. We contend for the faith against false teaching in the church, in our homes, in our hearts, so that we can proclaim this gospel to our city and to the nations and so that we can pass it down to our children in the coming generations. We heed this responsibility with great confidence and great care as we've been entrusted with this deposit of faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Let's pray together. Father, we we do give you thanks for entrusting us with this gospel. I pray that we would be good stewards of it and that we would contend for it when the need arises. Help us always, protect us always from being the kind of people who love to fight. We don't want to love to fight. Help us to love the faith, to love Christ, to love his gospel, and to fight for it because we love him. And because we love one another, because we love the lost and our children in the coming generations. Others, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember together this great gospel that has been delivered to us. We pray that it would be to us the communion with the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would be strengthened and nourished by this meal to continue to fight, to continue to contend, to continue to love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.